People say that some cities like London or Seattle or Paris are more beautiful when it's raining. New York is not one of those cities. Sure, there's people out there who say that New York in the rain has a certain gritty charm, and to those people I'd say, I'm sorry that your opinion is stupid. First of all, you don't realize how much you hate going out until you're packed into a crowded subway car. Picture that, but now everybody is cold and wet and miserable, and you start to wonder why you even moved here in the first place. Oh right, you wanted adventure, and you thought it would just come so easily to you. And yet, here you are, recently out of a job and trapped in one of the most expensive cities in the world. That cold, wet, angry guy on the subway, that's me. Fortunately, misery loves company. So on one rainy day in January, my friend Jackie and I ventured into the downpour and swung by the Strand Bookstore in Union Square. Jackie had been feeling down in the dumps. I think she just murdered her boyfriend or something. And us being entitled millennials living in a city we couldn't even afford, both decided on some old-fashioned book therapy. In a far, quiet corner of the store, we came across the bargain table, piled with those books that don't really fit in anywhere on the shelf. You know what they say, one man's junk and all that. And from the bottom of the heap, Jackie pulled out a little big book called 100 Places You Will Never Visit by Daniel Smith. I'm not sure why this book was on the bargain table, so Mr. Smith, if you're listening to this, that was not my decision. And also, your book is pretty cool. The title of this book presented a challenge. What prevents someone from going somewhere? With enough ingenuity and skill, all obstacles can be surmounted, right? Jackie and I were both stubborn and curious people, the perfect target audience for a book like this. So I asked her to flip to a random page and let the fates give us our destination unknown. And this is where I first learned the story of the Amber Room a chamber of immense treasure and artistry that vanished during World War II. Now, how could someone misplace an entire room? Well, turns out the answer is Nazis, but let's save that for next episode. In any case, this unusual story began to stir my imagination, and I started thinking of all the places in the world where something so absurdly precious might end up. The attic of a German aristocrat, an abandoned manor in the dark forests of Bavaria, your grandma's storage closet. Certainly, that treasure had to be out there somewhere, just waiting to be discovered. But it had been lost, and that's the part that got to me. I mean, as humans, we like our shiny things, and we tend to do everything in our power to keep them from going astray. This legend also reminded me that this was not the first time I'd been struck with curiosity over missing treasure. In fact, I had been indoctrinated with legends and mystery at a very early age. You may have deduced, based on my joblessness and cynicism, that I came of age in a golden era known as the early 90s. 
As a kid, I cut my teeth on Legends of the Hidden Temple, a Nickelodeon game show that tasked kids with answering historical questions in order to get a chance at running through an obstacle course designed like a Mayan ruin. The conceit of this show was that all of history's lost treasures eventually ended up inside the hidden temple, which was guarded by horrifying temple guards who would jump out of the woodwork and pull these hapless nine-year-old contestants into the dark abyss of the unknown. Because the early 90s didn't care about your stupid little emotions, and childhood trauma gives you character, damn it. Back then, I actually liked the rainy days, when the words, we are delayed due to train traffic ahead of us, were still mercifully unknown to me. On these days, my mom, a professor who didn't believe in letting her kid rot in front of the TV set, would take advantage of the weather and bring me to hidden temples of another sort, history museums, aquariums, and galleries. Here I learned that there was much more to the world than the suburbs of New Haven, Connecticut, and so much more that had come before me. And I was seven. I was getting up there in age. Rainy days also meant that my dad might draw up a treasure map to a hidden relic somewhere within the confines of our house and push me on the path towards adventure indoors. These treasures were usually small things like candy or a stuffed toy, but it was always a big achievement when I finally found them. The payoff, you see, is nothing without the journey. In those glory days of the late 90s, pop culture was all about unearthing the past and plunging into the territories of the unknown. Cable television seemed preoccupied with keeping us up at night. You had Robert Stack, the most ominous man in existence, terrifying us with a new unsolved mystery each week. And in the primetime slot, special agents Dana Scully and Fox Mulder were constantly searching for the truth, always eluding them in the nebulous out there. And my video games were not exempt from adventure and mystery either. On PC, Indiana Jones struggled to uncover the fate of Atlantis, while on the fledgling PlayStation, a female contemporary named Lara Croft had burst onto the scene to prove that adventure was not exclusively a man's game. This was also around the time that advancements in technology began leading us towards discoveries of things once thought lost forever, such as Robert Ballard's discovery of the resting place of the Titanic. These events led us to ask all sorts of questions, the least of which was, could Jack really have fit on that door if he just tried? These new discoveries also brought on another Egyptology and archaeology boom, and I distinctly remember that my second grade curriculum was almost exclusively devoted to oceanic exploration or uncovering the legacy of the pharaohs. And every new National Geographic that appeared on my mother's desk heralded the announcement of a new discovery, sunken ships, resurfaced tombs, the remnants of forgotten civilizations. There was all of this going on, plus Tamagotchis, Dunkaroos, and Surge Soda. Do you even remember Surge Soda? The 90s was a great time to be alive. We had wonder, we had innocence, and we were told that nothing was impossible. So it's no wonder that my childhood obsession with treasure would come back to me now, 
as an awkward, traumatized, half-form adult standing in a bookstore and facing down a mystery. But now that I was a confused and jaded 20-something, my questions had become more skeptical and introspective. For one thing, how do you even begin to define treasure? It's kind of an arbitrary thing when you think about it, we're just told things are priceless because they are. That gold is worth something because it just is. According to Webster's Dictionary, treasure is defined as wealth of any kind or any form. I mean, even that's kind of an open-ended description. I'm sure if you ask some people about treasure, their first thought would be a cavern full of pirate gold and gems. More philosophical types might refer to national treasures, such as great artists, musicians, or Betty White. But whatever comes to mind, most people think of treasure as something inherently valuable, shiny, and worth heaps and heaps of money. But for me, treasure isn't even about the worth or the value. It's about the story, and nothing makes for a greater story than those priceless objects that have gone missing, sucked under the couch cushions of history. Of course, artifacts don't just lose themselves. The stories of treasures lost and found are often stories of folly, greed, occasionally romance, but usually about human error. Great men and women alike have gone in search of legends and have never returned. But some have and not necessarily empty-handed. After all, sometimes just the story alone is worth its weight in gold. You see what I did there? Growing up, I wanted to be like Indiana Jones, but really more like Lara Croft. And though I am commonly found wearing short shorts and a tank top like her, I don't exactly have the resources, patience, or rugged charm to be an actual treasure hunter. But I do have a communications degree, a microphone, and the internet. This is my obsession, and now you're all part of it. This is Relic, the Lost Treasure Podcast, and each week I'll be taking you on a different treasure hunt chock full of mystery, legend, and sass. My name is Maxwell. Let's go on an adventure. <laughs> <laughs>